so I can look at myself in the shower. Sometimes I wish I was a pretty girl, so I can look at myself in the shower. Sleeping in Stereo on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Paul Stir. You just heard The Hunting Accident with Sometimes I Wish I Was a Pretty Girl. Before that, Super Chunk, Low F, and Koei with R.E.M. Up next, I'm going to play Primer Amor by Kinky. And after that, more music, get more music, get more music, get more music, get more music. Thank you. 
por la noche entre estrellas de whisky El cansancio de ambos se posa en las duras banquetas Me pareciste un frasco donde colocarlo Por medio de besos, por medio de versos y versos Que te hago los dos con mi boca en forma de trompeta Y que toca y que toca una nota en tu labio de abajo Y las otras se me quedan en la punta de la lengua
nothing hard now to say that I want you Now that I really want you More than when I said it before I know I must have told you that I wanted you Because I wanted you to say
Listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. You just heard the polyphonic spree with your golden before that Kyle Folger day. Or I guess it's She really meant it. The Shins with uh, their version of Strange Powers originally by the Magnetic Fields. Right now you're listening to Pokey Lafarge, River Rock Bottom. This is gonna be the last thing I play before Living Writers. Thanks for listening. Oh, oh, I'm sinking down into the river rock bottom. I'd only heard about the blues until I got them, boys. Where does the time go? I have no idea. time go into the river rock bottom 
In the door, my baby said, Our poke eaters ain't the same no more. She said, Ooh, you better stop sinking down to the river rock bottom. She said, I got what you need, boy. Oh, if you got him, oh, I got him now. Wait a minute, baby, you know I done, no, I done, tried it all. And she said, You tried everything. Giving me a call, she said, Ooh, you better stop, better stop singing down. And to the river rock bottom, she said, I got what you need, boy. Oh, if you got him. WCBN FM Ann Arbor, the University of Michigan's student run radio station, is looking for a few good robots or students to do the DJ thing, like on the radio, you know? For information on how to get involved with WCBN, email training at wcbn.org. That's training at wcbn.org. 
And remember, we are the robots. WCBN? I mean, do you really love WCBN? Do you love what you hear on the radio? Do you know we exist to provide unique, insightful, and educational programming to the community of Ann Arbor and the surrounding area? Do you want to help us? Do you really want to help us? Go online to WCBN.org, click on Donate, and it'll take you to the University of Michigan's secure donation page. Everything helps. Help keep community radio and freeform alive. Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today I'm so pleased to have Philip and Aaron Stead here in the studio with me. Um, welcome, Phil and Aaron. Thanks. Thanks, yeah, for, thanks having for having us. us. It's great to see you guys. And I should say, we're taping the show. It's the 9th of April, 2013. Um, Phil and Aaron, you're going to be um, reading um, this, this week in town, um, and that'll be on Thursday. So, um, People can catch you. Is it five o'clock that you'll be doing the reading? I think a little after five ten. Five ten. Five ten. The Michigan time thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In Arbor time. <laughs> and this will be at uh, UMA. Will it be the Art Museum and the Helmet Stern Auditorium? Correct. Wonderful. Okay, so that's Thursday, five ten, Helmet Stern Auditorium at UMA, and that then you'll hear and meet Philip and Aaron Stead. Um, You've got so many beautiful books here. We've got a lot. This is one of the times when we're going to have to sort of give the the um, the, the books are, are just beautiful. Uh, before I go any further, I'm going to read your short bios in the back of the books that will be soon coming out. These are advanced copies of um, Aaron, your book, If You Want to See a Whale. Um, and that let's see a Neil Porter book with Roaring Brook Press. And then, Phil, your book here. <laughs> Hello, my name is Ruby. And this is also with a, um, Roaring Book Brook Press, which I love because it seems like Roaring Book as well. It's, so great. <laughs> it's, it's a really difficult thing to say fast. Yeah. yeah. Well, roaring is a tough yeah. word. W- roaring Book. Roaring Book. <laughs> That happens a lot. Yeah. Is that how I first said it to <laughs> No, no. <laughs> These guys were kind of smirking over the... No, I'm just kidding. They weren't. They weren't. Um, okay. But for the, um, the first... Let's... Aaron's bio first. If you want to see a whale, this book will be coming out later this spring, right? Yeah, May 7th. Pretty soon. Oh, geez. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Aaron Eastead first met Julie Fogliano... Who, is, um, who actually writes the text for If You Want to See a Whale, while working together in a New York City bookstore. 
Today, she lives in a 100-year-old barn in Ann Arbor, Michigan, with her husband, Philip, who is an author and illustrator, and with whom she created A Sick Day for Amos McGee, winner of the 2011 Caldecott Medal, as well as Bear Has a Story to Tell. She also illustrated Julie Fogliano's And Then It's Spring. Erin created the illustrations for this book using woodblock printing techniques and pencil. And hopefully we'll hear a little more about that, that later. And now for Phil's. Phil's bio um, from the back of Hello, My Name is Ruby. Will this also be out in May, Phil? Uh, this will be out in September, actually. Oh, September in September. 10th, 11th? Something like that. So put that on your calendars, folks, because <laughs> yeah. that's a little bit far out, <laughs> but um, it will be worth the wait. Um, Philip Seastead is the author of the 2011 Caldecott Medal book, A Sick Day for Amos McGee. So now I'm saying these names again, but that way you can be sure to catch them. <laughs> His most recent book, A Home for Bird, received four starred reviews and was called A Deeply Satisfying Story by Kirkus Reviews. Philip lives with his wife, illustrator Aaron Eastead in Ann Arbor, Michigan, in a hundred year old barn as we know now well welcome again you guys (laughs) thank you (laughs) um so there's um there's a a bit of maybe we'll say a bit about the music that we'll hear today on the program phil um because you're responsible for that not only did you choose it you actually created it yeah sure actually i'm I'm really living my dream right now (laughs) i think my in, in my the sort of alternate path for my life i always wanted to be a wcbn freeform radio dj and this is my first time in the studio, and we're playing music that I made uh, for the show. So I pretty much could walk out this door and get hit by a bus, <laughs> and everything would be cool. Except, um, except for Aaron, who left yeah. to pick up the pieces. Alone. You know, but I would know. It would, would be know it still. It would be a celebratory <laughs> moment, yeah. I think, for all of us. Um, and then, I mean, I'd not be the all, bus driver, not Phil. The man, not the bus well, driver. yeah, but I'd be all the more likely to have my picture. I think memorialized in the WCBN <laughs> studio forever. There's no need. To, this is. We're, I'll snap a pic. We'll put it up, Phil. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, yeah, the music. Um, music is really more of a hobby for me. Uh, I, ca- I came from a musical family, and I think much to the chagrin of of my parents, never really learned how to play any instruments properly. But I can play a lot of instruments um, with sort of like a middling level of of competence. Is that panache? Uh, Maybe is that another word for it? Like sort of. Yeah, perhaps, <laughs> perhaps. Um, so you know, a new thing that's sort of been happening uh, in the last few years is that uh, bookmakers are starting to get are starting to make book trailers for their books, similar to movie trailers. And I really wanted to make book trailers for our books, primarily as an excuse to write my own music for the books. But also because we are control freaks about our books. <laughs> um, we tend to do all the designing and um, and everything else. And so I think we make our publisher a little disappointed, but also we make everything ourselves. So Phil started making the trailers himself and putting them all together. Yeah, and in watching other people's trailers... Um, it's it's difficult to make a good one, I think, um, with a low budget, if you have to use uh, copyright-free music and that sort of thing. And so a lot of these trailers, the music really doesn't doesn't seem appropriate. With doesn't the, fit the book. Yeah, it doesn't right. doesn't fit the book. And I think people really struggle to put these things together. And I thought, well, I can make a one and a half minute song. That's what I can do. Any longer than that, and I kind of lose my way. But for one and a half minutes, I can I can really. I think put something together and that that involves some pretty strange things like with my accordion I do not know how to play the accordion 
Uh, <laughs> but I spend all day kind of working out a six or seven note melody, and then I put little post-it notes on all the little keys, and then spend the rest of the day trying to play that melody, uh, you know, with the help of the post-it notes until it, until it's down. And then in the end, it really doesn't sound too bad. And I think most people would think that I know what I'm doing. But <laughs> yeah, it, it, it reminded me of Daniel Handler of a Lemony Snicket. Well, well except he knows how to play yeah, the accordion. He's very good at playing the accordion. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he's yeah he's got real talent. I just have uh, perseverance <laughs> and, and education. Yeah, I have like that Midwest Midwestern blue collar <laughs> perseverance. Like I will learn how to play this accordion by the end of the day. Um, it's not everyone who has an accordion where they can do. You know, this is great. I mean, you found the accordion. Yeah. Well, one of the uh, benefits. Yeah, one of the that. benefits of living with a musical family is that they buy all kinds of things that they don't actually need, and then I get them eventually. So I mean, yeah. I've got everything. At one point or another, I've had everything from mandolins to keytars, um, and I don't yeah. really know how to play any of them. <laughs> and are they also in Ann Arbor then? Uh, they're they're in the Detroit area, not not in Ann Arbor, but yeah. Because it's interesting because you said that it's been a lifelong dream, <laughs> and I know you were using a, some amount of hyperbole there to sort of underscore the excitement of the moment. But do you are you are you um, like are you from Ann Arbor or what's or what's your um, what, I went or, to the yeah. university. Yeah, I went to the university. I was uh, I graduated from the art school uh, back in two thousand and two, maybe. I don't remember something like that. Yeah. Uh, Aaron and I are both from Metro Detroit, though. We went to high school together in Dearborn, um, so we do have uh, Michigan roots that yeah. go pretty pretty far back. And so, and then from the bio, the short bios, there was some time in New York City. And then you returned. We did. It was on accident. But we stayed also on accident. Um, we were living in New York City, and we both got book deals. Uh, and we decided, um, partially because when you get a book deal, uh, you don't, uh, much to contrary belief, you do not make a lot of money, um, especially in picture books. And so um, since we both got deals at the same time, we had to figure out what we were going to do making so much less money for the year. So we decided to uh, move to the mountains outside of New York City, and it was a disaster. Oh, no. <laughs> but there might be another um, picture book from it, right? Actually, it's is kinda, there the mountain? Where is, well, which, where some is, of the stories yeah. is similar to A Home for Birds. Yeah, in many ways, uh, the bo oh. our book, or my book, A Home for Birds, sort of oh. came out of that experience of trying to find a home outside of New York and having everything be such a... Unmitigated disaster. disaster. Yeah, yeah, it was a disaster. So, so what ended up happening is that when we find none of this pain is in a home for birds. It's a very delightful, <laughs> lighthearted story about friendship. Well, <laughs> there are some sad moments, there, though. There are. Every and, picture book has a conflict, and you need that, don't you? you? Do. Yeah. Why? I, I think that um, I think that people think that kids don't need or uh, to be. Um, experiencing that sort of emotional highs and lows within a picture book. And I, I also, I often think that those adults haven't spent any time with children <laughs> because if you watch a kid throughout the course of a day, they are on top of the world and crying sometimes within, you know, 30 seconds of one another. Um, Full spectrum of emotions, yeah, really. Yeah, and, it, and it's difficult and they feel a lot of different things. And um, in a lot of ways, it's it's harder than being an adult um, and I think we forget that uh, because their life is simpler but um, we we talk about it too their life is often like being a foreigner um, they have they're told what to do all day long 
Um, they're not really in control of anything most of the time. They don't always understand what's happening. They don't always understand why we have to do any of this stuff. Uh, and so I think as picture book makers, we, I don't know, we try not to forget that or we don't forget it. Yeah, I think we just try to respect the audience. I think that yeah. they, they al- already, you know, by the age of three or two, are al- already uh, sort of developing a sense of, of tragedy in their life. Yeah. Um, and a sense of how to overcome that tragedy on a small scale, but but still, even Knowing at that young age. And, yeah. Yes. Yeah. yes. I think the, and I'm not sure, Aaron, which dark moment you mean? I would think it was almost in um, when the bird can't isn't responding to the frog, <laughs> and so he's feels Vernon. Vernon's the name of the main character, who's a frog, right? Or is he a toad? He's a well, frog. He's, he's a toad. Is he a toad? I consider is him a toad, toad, although it's never really. It's never really said. Yeah, but he is brownish, isn't he? So yeah. I should have known more toad than frog here, <laughs> in in the beautiful colors. <laughs> But it, but it's like and maybe he can't he doesn't seem to feel like he can help Bird and so that I think there's a frustration that Vernon is feeling throughout the story wanting uh, wanting to help his silent partner for those of you out there in the listening audience that aren't familiar with this book uh, uh, Vernon is a toad who is just a real mensch I mean he's really a, he wants to do right by his friends and he is a collector of. Uh, interesting things in a forager and while he's foraging one day in the woods he happens to come across this little brown or a little blue wooden cuckoo bird um we should interject here that vernon while being one heck of a guy is um <laughs> a little thick is no, it, no. yeah he's just he's very sincere he would do anything for you but he doesn't he's not very bright Right, and to me, <laughs> but, but I hate but, saying out loud. I, well, well, I think the only reason why Aaron is mentioning that is because because um, the the bird has sort of a button, looks like maybe a button eye or something. You you can tell that maybe bird is still like it may be a woodblock bird. Yeah, b- bird is inanimate. What we <laughs> what we learn actually on the copyright page before the story has begun is that um, this sort of ramshackle moving truck has been bouncing down the road. And Bird has accidentally flown out the back of a cuckoo clock, which is how Vernon comes to find him. Uh, Vernon does not realize that Bird is uh, inanimate, and so he becomes worried that uh, Bird's lack of responsiveness is due to a a sadness or a need, and thus begins the journey in the story. The journey is to find Bird's home. So he needs a home. Mm -hmm. And is this part of the, when you were talking about the design earlier and the idea of controlling how the picture book will will look, um, so is this something that is normal, because you said on the copyright page, there's part of the story, the narrative information that you need is actually here, rather than, because if if we flip through it, everyone out there, then it seems like the story begins Mm -hmm. on this, but that's interesting. I loved that. That ends up being... I think in an ideal world, I probably wouldn't have wanted to use the copyright page, but oh, okay. but um, most it, it ended up books, working out. Yeah, most picture books are thirty-two pages, um, and so within that construction, you have to figure out how to make it, and that's a huge challenge. Yeah, I think it's it's a it's sort of a lesser known uh, concept in the making of picture books is that unlike other forms of literature, it's really a three-dimensional object that has to be yes. considered. Uh, Cover to cover. Cover to cover. And 32 pages with traditional end papers is the most common format. There are, are other formats, but 32 pages is the one you see the most and the one I think that most readily uh, 
it, it just feels right in your hands. Yeah. It feels like the right length for the story. Parents are usually happier about it. Kids can sit through most of the time. Yeah, something we've really discovered something right about 32 pages. Yeah. Um, so sometimes because of that, though, you have to make um, difficult choices with your story, such as using the copyright page right. uh, to impart some sort of... Uh, story element. Let's take a short break and we'll come back and pick up on this if you guys don't mind. Today in the studio um, Philip and Aaron Stead are here. Um, when we come back we'll talk about some of the many beautiful books that we have on the table here with us. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Thanks to Tex Behind the Glass in the Engineering Booth. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today in the studio, I'm happy to have with me Philip Stead and Aaron Stead. Um, in fact, let's see, Philip C. Stead and Aaron B. <laughs> Stead are here in the studio. And that piece of music was created and performed by Phil. And Phil, which story is that matching to? That one matches up with uh, a story that I wrote and illustrated called uh, Jonathan in the Big Blue Boat, which... I think if I had to pick one story that, that I really like the most that I've done, it's this one. And it's not because it's been the most successful, because it certainly hasn't, uh, but it's the one that, it hasn't been the least successful yeah. either, Aaron's <laughs> laughing. I definitely know which book of mine has been the least successful. Which one? Well, we can talk about really? that. Really? Okay. Yeah. okay. Well, uh, if you want, you can oh, bring no, it up. I, if you think it's important. Oh, I, I want to talk about okay. it. Okay. It's, it's a kind of an interesting I've story. I've got a bone too. to pick with the, with the world. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Let's get back to that. Yeah, then. yeah. <laughs> no, um, Jonathan, the Big Blue Boat, I think, really sort of s just f flowed right out of my subconscious. Uh, I think growing up in Michigan and growing up around the Great Lakes, I think when you grow up around here, you just kind of have a sense of of maritime something just kind of mm -hmm. lodged inside of you. And this book just came right out of that. There's pirates. There's pirates. Yeah, well, there's pirates. There's and it really, I wanted to write oh, this story. Whales. Mm -hmm. I wanted to write this story as an excuse to illustrate all of my favorite things. And so it's whales, <laughs> it's big blue steamships, uh, it's pirates. Giant squid. Uh, Giant squid. <laughs> squids and goldfish and elephants and mountain goats and just about everything that, that I'd been sort of sketching and thinking about for, for the last 30 years ended up in some capacity in this story. Um, and I just had a lot of fun doing it. I think most of the, the books we do, we really fight with and struggle with. And even if the end product seems friendly and, and cheerful, a lot of times we really had to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the artwork. But this one, I just woke up every day and wanted to work on it. And did you have the story that you sketched out first, Phil, for for this book? Or did you have some of the, the, 
the images, the the pictures first. This one was interesting because what actually happened is that uh, we've done all of our books with the same editor at the same publishing house. So Neil Porter is our editor. He works for Roaring Brook Press, which is a small press in New York that's now owned by Macmillan, which most people have heard of. Um, but we do most of our business with him just at his apartment, you know, sitting around his coffee table. And very, which is great. Yeah, which it's is not the it's way a great most way to work. work. Yeah. Um, so things are not decided by committee or anything like that. But pretty early on um, in our career, we were sitting around his apartment, and I had some uh, images from my portfolio out. And one of them was just this drawing I had done, uh, this collage I had done of a big blue boat. Um, I had not done it for any real specific purpose. It was just something I had made. And it does look like a collage. I see what you mean just for our listeners. The boat seems to be almost made up like it could be a quilt, even though there's things that you can see, like there's the the portals and um, the flag and the steam columns that you'd expect on a ship. There's also um, sort of not paisley, but some sort of swirls and dots and some writing, like a torn piece of paper that's part of the hull or yeah, there's letters in there and Phil's stamp collection. Yeah, <laughs> postcards. Yeah, the the art is all, it, it's collage art and it's all old and found material. Uh, sometimes um, uh, changed or altered in some way, painted over, or drawn over with crayon. Um, but anyhow, we we're, were sitting at Neil's house and uh, he pointed to the big blue boat and he said, I'd, "I'd like to see a story about that." And I can't even remember what I was trying to sell him at that moment, but it was something else. <laughs> and but he wanted a story about the big blue boat, and I said, okay. And uh, within a few weeks, I had a draft of this story. Yeah. Can you walk us through a little bit of the the, the process of, because you said, Erin, it's, it's not all like that around yeah. a coffee table. And, um, well, we and, have and you a, mentioned your first break, too, it seemed like. Yeah. Or was that the first break in New York City? We have a very unique relationship with our editor um, compared to the way other people work uh, within the publishing world um we've only worked with neil he basically found us um me especially uh and um in my case he uh wrote me up a book deal by taking me out to dinner and saying i want you to make a picture book and he had seen um only one drawing that i had made and how did he see that aaron what was the? that was phil's that was my fault (laughs) (laughs) uh what happened was i um I, I left college. Uh, I was I was in art school uh, on the East Coast, and I left sort of broken. Um, I I lost all my confidence. I didn't know what I was making, uh, and decided that I wasn't going to ever draw again. Um, and I stopped drawing for about hmm, three years. Was it three years? About three years. Um, and uh, and through the arc of that, sort of figured out that I needed to draw um and it didn't matter if i wasn't going to show it to anybody but uh it was an outlet for me um that i had denied myself and uh i needed to i was i i say that i was boring to myself like i I just wasn't um i wasn't interested in my own brain anymore so um so i started drawing a little with with some help uh and um, I, I would draw these little tiny drawings on the kitchen table in when, in our apartment in Brooklyn. Um, but at the time, I was working for a publisher. And um, that was my full-time job. Uh, a different publisher, not the one that we were later uh, published by. Um, so then what happened? You? Well, <laughs> it, it, gets, it gets a little <laughs> complicated. But uh, 
I was working on my first book with Neil, which is Cream Tuna Fish and Peas on Toast. Uh, we'll talk about that in a second. That's my least <laughs> accomplished book. Um, I, and I still kind of love it. Um, and interestingly enough, it's the story that I think when I read it to children, that's they the, like it that's the most. That's the winner. But yeah. parents, wow. parents vehemently dislike this yep. book. Um, but who's your audience? The kids. But how do you get but the how books do you get in their hands? The parents. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's that's like, the biggest problem. If I could just, oh. yeah, if, if kids could just take their parents' money and make their own choices, then Listen I'd, up, be a, kid. I'd be a rich man. <laughs> yeah. um, so I was working on Cream Tuna Fish and Peas on Toast uh, with with Neil, and through a friend, Neil had heard that that my wife, Erin, was also an artist. And so Neil emailed me and said, is, is this true? Is Erin an artist as well? And I said, yes, but she's very shy and she's not going to want to show you anything. But, you know, she just finished this drawing. It's sitting on the kitchen table, and I scanned it into the computer and sent it over to him and that was the drawing you know it had nothing to do with the story it wasn't um it wasn't tied to it wasn't it. finished either yeah, by well, the it, way. it really wasn't <laughs> even finished um but it was a, it was a drawing of an elephant and an old man yeah um oh. which a sick day for amos mcgee uh there are other animals as well but i but think most people up. would would recognize it because of the elephant and the yeah. old man on the cover uh so neil and i sort of developed this strategy to convince Aaron to do a book. Um, this whole time I was at work, I, I had no idea this was going on. <laughs> yeah, and so I knew I had to write a story quickly, so I wrote a, a very quick draft of what became A Sick Day for Amos McGee. Uh, the arc of the story was pretty much the same as what you see today in the book, um, although the, the writing itself was not very good yet. It was really just the bones of the story. And what I was trying to do was write a story that I knew Aaron, I knew would play to Aaron's strengths. So instead of um, I, I really thought about the images first instead of instead of the the story. So I had this image in my head of an old man playing chess with an elephant. That was the first image I had in mind because I just knew Aaron would be great at at making that picture. And then I built the story around that. So what kind of story would exist? Uh, in what kind of story could this image exist? And that's how a sick day for Amos McGee was was born. Mm-hmm. And we mentioned that that was a a rough outline of the text. And then, and then Aaron started drawing these images. When, what do you, how, how do you know that the words are right in the picture book? I think most of our job is based on gut feeling. I mean, we have a really, uh, Neil is a very good line editor, um, which a lot of editors don't even do anymore. Uh, and so there's a lot of discussion about specific words within a sentence. But, um, I mean, you're the... Yeah, writing for me is kind of... It's, I think it's a little bit unique com- compared to most writers in that I'm an artist first. I, I went to art school. I didn't, I didn't study literature. Um, I took classes in Angel Hall here, but... Um, and plenty. You took a lot. But it's not, it wasn't my focus. Yeah. Uh, and so I've always been a little bit distrustful of language. So whenever possible, I'm actually trying to get as, as much language deleted. And I'm usually sort of being pulled by my editor to sort of... Or me. Uh put more into the story and I'm told now that that's sort of the opposite of how he would normally have to work that most most authors uh, too much text yeah too much text and and they're pulling back so that was interesting for me to learn but I think that flows directly out of uh, you know really thinking of myself as an artist first and a writer second it's that I don't maybe not so much that I don't trust language but I don't trust myself with language Um, or I have to be convinced that I can trust myself with language uh, and then uh, for the books that we make together, when Phil writes them, I, I don't write, but when Phil writes them and I illustrate them, um, 
there's a lot of back and forth. Uh, and then there are, there are moments where we get to drop text all together because as the book is developing, I can say, I don't think we need this here. Um, and, and that's beneficial for both of us, I think. Yeah, and that's also a little bit unique in, in the world of picture books in that most authors and illustrators don't actually even meet unless they yeah. might have a, a book signing together you know, well after the book's been published. Why is that? So, uh, as speaking as an illustrator, I think that there's a benefit to it sometimes. Um, a lot of times, if you read manuscripts from authors, um, as an illustrator, you can say, well, I, this can be my job. We, we don't have to describe this. I can do this. Um, and in picture books, that's really important um, because there's a rhythm to the illustrations versus the words in picture books where you want the, the child who probably can't read yet to be studying the pictures as somebody is reading to them. And so you have to find that balance. Um, but why do you think illustrators don't meet authors uh, since you're married to one? I don't know. I mean, sometimes I'm suspicious of it. Yeah. Uh, but other times it seems like it's the right choice. And I really think it boils down to the editor. You, you need to have an editor that understands uh, who they're working with and yeah. how they should work together. Um, there are some picture book authors that are, that are authors only. They don't, they don't illustrate. That are excellent at writing picture book yeah. texts and should absolutely be involved with the illustrator. The first person that comes to mind is Mac Barnett, who um, wrote a number of books last year that were just stellar picture book text. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure that he gets pretty involved with the entire creation of the book. But there are other authors that really... Um, well, Julie, for one, the, um, I've made I've made books with Phil and I've made books with my friend Julie Foliano. And Julie is a poet, um, although she wouldn't tell you that. Um, and when she writes a text, um, it's completely out of her hands at that point. I take it. And, uh, and she has no... But she wa- she would like it that way. Yeah, it's, it's not that she's frustrated with that arrangement. No, she, she doesn't think visually. She just thinks with, you know, the cadence of text and the, the the rhythm of the words, and that's that's what she does well. And then once she hands it to Aaron, she yeah. really waits to to see what Aaron does with it. And does she break it then? Would Julie then? No, send I do you it. Pro- you break the text. Yeah. So she sends you this long. Yep. Then it, then it would look like a poem. Yep. It does. It yeah. Um, so with with the first collaboration they did, which is called And Then It's Spring. Uh, the text doesn't have any characters in it. It doesn't indicate a setting. Uh, Neither does the second one, either. Yeah, and if, if the second one, if you want to see a whale, also has no characters indicated, no setting. Yeah. Uh, they're both actually... Um, they're, they're both notions about not seeing something. Right, and so, so as an illustrator, that is a challenge. Yeah, so the book, <laughs> the book is called And Then It's Spring, but you don't actually get even... You don't get to spring, don't get to until, spring the last until page thirty-two. Yeah. Um, Same with the whale. With the whale as well. It's about not seeing the whale. So that's tension. So that's yeah. what you're talking about with the the, the picture books yep. for the audience, the children's audience. There's layers of complication and error. Yeah, yeah. And Erin, uh, her job as the illustrator was to add a protagonist to this, or not, depending on how not, somebody I, would see it. Right. And but Erin chose to do that, yeah. and so you can follow a character through this this uh, experience. Yep. Who wants to see a whale? Um, okay, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Philip Seastead and Aaron Eastead are here in the studio. We'll take a short break. We'll be right back.